0: Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Clayton, Australia to discuss sedation with dexmedetomidine versus propofol in critically ill patients.
1: Um, thank you for having me. Firstly, uh, I'm a professor of intensive care and director of critical care research at Monash University and the University of New South Wales. Uh, I'm still a practicing intensive care specialist, uh, a senior academic and a clinical trialist. Uh, I work in tertiary teaching university hospitals in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, I'm better known for the uh, being the architect and the lead investigator in the sedation practice and intensive care evaluation uh, research program, otherwise known as the SPICE program, which was started in 2009.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, uh, Dr. Shahabi. We have chatted before, um, and uh, we do recommend our, our listeners go back to a previous podcast we did with you a year ago, So today we're talking about correctly sedating critically ill patients, and maybe for the benefit of our audience, you can let us know why is sedation so important uh, in critically ill patients, and why do we need to pay so much attention to both the agent and the dose?
1: Uh, Certainly. Look, uh, sedative agents uh, don't just sedate patients. Um, I mean, they're... uh, they have a a myriad of other multisystem biologically important effects uh, that impact important patient outcomes and change a lot of things in a patient. So these effects are uh, usually dose dependent, uh, agent specific and also patient specific. So different patients uh, respond differently to different dose and different drugs and different combination of agents. So, uh, the use of sedatives in combination, which is pretty common in most intensive care units, uh, the nature of these combinations also may have a profound impact on important outcomes. So, uh, you know, as a clinician, I've been practicing intensive care for more than 25 years. Uh, Most patients who are in intensive care do receive a sedative agent at one stage or another. And, and, you know, so sedation is pretty much ubiquitous, uh, kind of an intervention in RCU. And until recently, really, we did not know better. So sedation research was limited by design, by small sample size, by inconsistent results, uh, lack of patient-centered outcomes. Uh, It was easy just to take an approach of one size fits all. Uh, A practice line, guidelines uh, also did the same, Uh, a lot of bundles of care, also framed sedation in a similar fashion that just apply this on everyone and everything would be fine. But uh, we know that when I see a patient who's 30 years old with severe odds needing controlled ventilation, Uh, that patient sedation is definitely very different from sedating someone who's 75 years old with a community-acquired pneumonia uh, requiring ventilation. Similarly, the sedation need in a patient following a complex operative procedure is also very different from sedating an oncology patient who comes from the ward with a septic complication following chemotherapy, for example. Therefore, the message that we need to say here is that there need to be a paradigm shift to an individualized approach in sedation management so that we don't treat everybody the same way. This past program has fortunately given us an, kind of like an unprecedented insight into managing early sedation in different population and also using different agents in different range of doses and different combinations than ever before. Uh, as such, we I think we are much closer today than we've ever been to kind of like a personalized approach to sedation management than we've, we've been. So this kind of like highlights why it's really important that uh, patients are given optimal sedation with the right dose, the right agent, the right combination, and the right sedation depths. Uh, Because all these together, uh, we now have clear evidence that they impact not just ventilation time or a bit of, uh, you know, higher risk of delirium, but it actually impact uh, significant patient-centered outcomes such as mortality uh, and ICU stay and long-term function.
0: And it's ultimately our goal, uh, to improve clinical outcomes with all the agents that we do choose. Um, you alluded to uh, the SPICE uh, trial, and um, we're going to be discussing uh, the SPICE-3 uh, paper published in the Blue Journal um, entitled "Dexmedetomidine and Propofol Sedation in Critically Ill Patients and Dose-Associated uh, 90-Day Mortality. Um, this was the secondary analysis. Maybe you could tell us why you performed the secondary analysis, and what were your important methods
1: yeah, I think I um, think uh, the uh, why we performed the second um, the secondary analysis, uh, you know, sparse 3 itself is is a, a very large trial. It has four thousand patients, so it was randomized controlled trial, and uh, it's still the largest sedation trial that's in a randomized fashion published. In pragmatic trials, and sparse 3 is one of them. Uh, we usually adopt a broad inclusion criteria and therefore heterogeneity is inevitable. Uh, however, in a large sample size, uh, heterogeneity is a good thing because it allows us to look into different populations uh, that share similar characteristics and may have different outcome by the treatment, which we refer to as the heterogeneity of a treatment effect. Uh, we've previously published extensive analysis on the heterogeneity of treatment effect on the 90-day mortality. We showed in our previous uh, publications that there was a divergent effect where younger patients did much worse, older patients did much better. Uh, Now, in this secondary analysis that we recently published in the Blue Journal, uh, we took our analysis further, trying to explore a possible pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic mechanisms for why such a heterogeneity in the older versus the younger population occurred. Um, so that's that's pretty much the reason why we performed this secondary analysis. Um, in terms of uh, our methods, um, because we, uh, in this past trial, uh, patients who were randomized to receive dexmedetomidine Uh, a high percentage of them, about 85% plus, received supplemental propofol to achieve clinically desired sedation level, Uh, we decided to include only those patients who were randomized to receive dexmedetamidine. So that's the older people and the younger people who were randomized to receive dexmedetamidine in the trial and received propofol as a supplemental sedative. We divided the cohort uh, by age, uh, below 65 and above 65, so dichotomized at 65. And uh, then we looked at the amount of, medication, sub, of sedatives given. So we calculated the mean per kilogram hourly infusion rate for both dexmedetomidine and propofol throughout the study period. So we collected the, all what was given and calculated the mean hourly dose per kilogram. Then what we did, we did what we what we described in the paper as a double stratification analysis, which is kind of like a novel statistical way of assessing the dose relationship between two drugs given at the same time. So, in this double stratification analysis, uh, we basically. Um, Aim to assess the impact of different dose combination of dexmedetomidine and propofol. So, in this method, what we do, we do. Uh, that's why it's called double stratification because there's two two sequential stratification that we do. So, the first stratification is we divide patients into subgroups that have similar mean dose of propofol, for example, and then we stratify. Them again, into subgroups, we distribute these subgroups into quartiles of progressively higher dexmedetomidine dose. So by doing that, we end up with a group of people who received similar dose of propofol, but also received a progressively higher dose of dexmedetomidine. Then we repeat the exercise backwards where we... We stratify those into similar dose of dex And then we stratify them second time into quartiles with increasing dose of propofol. So by that, we now have groups of people who would have a steady dose of dex then given an increasing dose of propofol to achieve sedation and vice versa. Then we used a... Once we've done that, we used a a Cox proportional hazard model to examine or evaluate the association of 90-day survival with each of the above strata. Um, The Cox proportional hazard model was adjusted for multiple pre-identified clinical variables. And for consistency, we used the same clinical variables that we used in our previous heterogeneity analysis. Uh, We also uh, conducted a sensitivity analysis where we looked at the patient at 48 hours, and we excluded those patients who died before 48 hours, so they have a very high risk of this. All those patients who have very low acuity and they got extubated and discharged of RCU before 48 hours. So we, we did a sensitivity analysis where we only included those who are in RCU at and beyond for 48 hours. Uh, and that data also, uh, we did a, a similar double certification analysis and a similar COX proportional uh, model adjustment for those in those groups of patients. So this is kind of like... Uh, primarily the core analysis that we did. We did a lot of other analysis that we normally do where we like to look at things from different angles just to make sure that whichever way we look at it, we are seeing the same picture. Uh, but that's primarily the core methods that we used.
0: So you basically compared um, dexmedetomidine and Purpofol and. Try to determine whether escalating one dose, uh, one medication compared to another resulted in different outcomes. Um, some may ask you the question um, is this not reflecting clinician practice in response to a clinical situation? And maybe what we will see in the findings is not that um, the, this particular medication is better than another. But that we're actually looking at the underlying severity of the patient, and that's why the clinicians are choosing to escalate one over one drug over another. What would your response to that be?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's a fair uh, comment, Dominic. I, I think uh, uh, if we look at the group, for example, the group that had uh, a steady state of dexmedetomidine with an increasing dose of propofol, uh, now. That group, you would expect that this group, this was given to make patients more deeply sedated. Now, in this group, if you look at the graphs for those patients, uh, that actually happened. The sedation depth increased, so they were deeply, more deeply sedated as the propofol dose increased. So those patients, essentially, the clinicians, even if they thought that the patient need to be more deeply sedated because they are sicker, they've achieved that. So they've achieved deeper sedation with more propofol, but still by doing that approach, there was actually uh, um, an association with with reduced mortality in this group. So conversely, if you look at the patients where a steady state of propofol was given, and then the uh, clinician chose to increase the dexmedetomidine to a much, much higher dose, uh, in those patients, uh, there was a failure to achieve deep sedation because we know that dexmedetomidine is not really a drug that's made to make people deeply sedated. So in those patients, uh, they had a higher Associated, associated with a higher mortality, which is uh, kind of like counterintuitive to what you think would happen in kind of practice where you would choose dexmedetomidine, for example, for patients who was likely to not need deep sedation and who are less sick. And you would use Provofol to deeply sedate those who are actually sicker. Uh, so that, that that's, that's the kind of like the, the counter argument to that. I think the other thing which is really important is that uh, this study, you know, this part three, wasn't done in one hospital, two hospitals. This was done across 74 intensive care units across the world. And, um, you know, uh, clinicians, you know, did not conspire to make this happen. Clinicians were just doing what they would normally do. And uh, they were choosing the patient who were sicker, uh, probably they were choosing to give them deeper sedation. And when dexmedetomidine was not achieving that, they were adding propofol to achieve that same sedation. So uh, I think that's the counter argument to that, Dominique.
0: So how would you explain the findings then? Um, uh, some folks are pretty adamant that they, we should be Lightening sedation, that we should be keeping patients awake, and that's why they tend to favour uh, dexmedetomidine. Um, yet your study would suggest that uh, the propofol was superior to um, dexmedetomidine. What would be the mechanism uh, to explain uh, this different finding?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think what uh, what we believe that um, the cocktail of high-dose dexmedetamidine and propofol may have resulted in a pharmacodynamic uh, interaction where the negative effects of one agent, which is in this case likely to be dexmedetamidine, may have become significantly exaggerated uh, in terms of whether it's cardiovascular effects or uh, humoral or endocrine effects uh, that has resulted in uh, what looked like a, a fatal toxic uh, combination. Um, we know that dexmeratomidine is is a drug that by the virtue of its mechanism of action work across multiple systems, uh, neuroendocrine, uh, you know, the humoral, the respiratory, the brain, the cardiovascular, the heart. Uh, it, it it does impact many systems within the body. And if we look at the amount of sedative used in in SPAR3, there's no question that younger patients required substantially higher doses of everything, higher doses of Dexmed, higher dose of Propofol, higher dose of Midazolam, uh, when compared with the older patients who required significantly less amount of sedatives to achieve pretty much the same sedation level. Um, you know, uh, so I think I think that's pretty important to, to keep in mind. I think the, the one part that I also wanted to take the opportunity to say is that uh, sparsely looked at early sedation, which means that sedation was given to these patients within four to five hours of being um, ventilated. And um, and be- and and because of that, uh, you know, we captured what clinicians do for sick patients early in their disease in that first 48 hours. This has been replicated many times in the ROSA trial and the Ardesa uh, trial and the Brazilian data, in many other data where every time clinicians capture that first 48 hour. Uh, data deep sedation is quite uh, is quite common, and uh, and we are seeing that. I think that's uh, that's not a surprise. Got gotcha. you.
0: And then one may also uh, raise the question of multiple testing. Um, did you make any adjustment for multiple testing? As we know, if you perform multiple testing, you know a hundred different tests. Maybe five of those will come back showing a significant value, and that's why it's important to, uh, when statisticians do um, calculate their p-values that they ask one specific question and not over-test. Were you able to adjust for multiple testing in your study?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Dominic. I think the multiple test is actually when not when you do multiple tests, it's when you do multiple measurements. So in, in our case, in this paper, we only looked at one outcome only. We only looked at 90-day mortality. We we kind of like resisted the temptation to look at any secondary outcome to exactly avoid what you just described. Um, when, because once you start doing that, then you have multiple measurements, then adjustments become necessary. But if you're doing a if you're looking at single outcome, uh, you, you, there's no need to adjust if you're looking at it by different means. You know, we're looking at it through a double stratification model. We're looking at it through a multivariable regression model. We're looking at a sensitivity analysis uh, of different populations showing the same consistency. We've done the marginal plots model, uh, which showed pretty much the same dose dependency uh, associated with mortality, uh, whichever you roll the dice, you come out with the same answer. Now, when you're doing that on a single outcome, there's no need for adjustment because that's not multiple measurements. You need adjustment if you're looking at five, six outcomes. Uh, you know, using the same the, the same regression model, for example, or the same uh, or the same uh, analysis. Then you, you need to adjust for each additional outcome
0: that you're measuring. agree. And what would this study imply Um, based on your findings? um, Would it change your clinical practice in terms of how you're prescribing uh, Presidex and Propofol? Um, Or would you say, you know, we need more data in order to figure this out? Um, Yours was a large study. You included over 1,000 patients. Um, as everyone knows, it's difficult to get good uh, clinical data or good uh, clinical trials in patients uh, with critical illness. Do we need another study or would you change your practice based on your findings?
1: Well, look, I think uh, this study needs to be taken in line with the heterogeneity of treatment effect paper that was published last year. Uh, I think, uh, you know, because of the large data set that we have, the large numbers that we've got in the study, um, you know, uh, there's one wise approach to do. If there is a a possibility of harm, harm needs to be avoided. If there's a possibility of benefit, benefit needs to be confirmed. So that's the approach that we've taken. and In fact, uh, some of the Regulatory agencies, for example, the European Medicine Agency, uh, have taken, you know, this step towards uh, putting a, a, a box warning on using dexmedetomidine, for example, in younger patients uh, because of the heterogeneity analysis that we produced. So in terms of this particular study that in the Blue Journal now, uh, it's really is another chapter into our research program, uh, which is advancing our understanding of, you know, what we do in terms of this practice, how it impacts important outcomes, such as mortality. I think the, the large s- sample size, uh, you know, allow us to have a robust evaluation of sedative impact of important subgroups, both based on age, based on operative status. So the, the, the message I would take out of this study in combination with the heterogeneity paper is that this study uh, basically brings us a step forward towards a more personalized approach to sedation management. Secondly, it, it essentially defined to us, it show us where harm is possible and where with certain sedatives such as dexmedetomidine, and when, uh, you know, and when benefit is, is potentially there. Uh, so these findings are really uh, relevant because, as you know, ventilated patients worldwide, uh, you know, the use of Dexmed and ProBofol is a recommended by practice guidelines. Uh, and uh, it's important to observe that heterogeneity signal that comes from a trial such as large as a sparse rate and and, and and finally there's no question as, he, as you know the more the more uh, unknown becomes known then we will have new unknowns that we don't know and um, so I think this trial definitely is opening a road that we need to travel in our future research to number one validate those benefits. But secondly, which is really important, uh, and maybe that has to be done in an experimental fashion, in animal model or something, is to understand the reason for this potential harm or the harm that we're observing in these populations. Gotcha.
0: And then coming back to um, the issue of mechanism, you alluded to that maybe it's you know a cardiovascular or hemodynamic issue related to the uh, dexmedetomidine. Um, were you able to look at whether the level of sedation made a difference? Um, Some would say that um, when the patients are not sedated enough, uh, they tend to wake up unexpectedly, um, maybe at high risk of an aspiration, uh disconnected lines, or is there any way that you're able to get down to uh, the details as to why the one group um, ended up having a higher 90-day mortality uh, versus the other?
1: We we looked at two things, Dominic. We first looked at the cause of death, uh, which we categorized for different groups. And what what was interesting is that um, distributive shock was seen significantly more as a proportion of those younger patients who died than than the proportion of those older patients who died with distributive shock. So there was more distributive shock death in the younger population, which I think goes along with the the you know the, the plausibility that this is probably is a, a a pharmacodynamic synergistic exercise where you know the high dose dexmedetomidine on top of rolfol have led to uh, significant cardiovascular negative effects. Um, we've also uh, looked at uh, the impact of cetacean tips and there's no question whichever way we looked at it, um, you know we're, we're finding that uh, the deeper sedation the patients are, whether they're younger or older patients, uh, the higher their odds ratio for mortality. And I think that goes along with the fact that you know patients who are lightly sedated, uh, they will likely to have better outcome, but clearly uh, sedation, as you know, Dominique, is, is something that is determined by clinicians post randomization. So it's quite difficult to assess that uh, and be certain of what is actually we doing or of the, of or of the conclusion that we do with that. So, so the only way we can look at that sedation level and uh, as and 90 their mortality is through the uh, multivariable regression and when we looked at it at the patients at 48 hours or the entire population we got the same signal uh, the deeper the sedation level the higher the association or the ratio of uh, of mortality yeah that's uh,
0: really fascinating. Uh Especially the fact that in those less than the age of 65, um, preferentially increasing propofol is beneficial whereas increasing dexmedetomidine versus their mortality. Um, There are no perfect studies. Uh, What uh, do you want our listeners to be aware of when reading your paper and noting about key limitations uh, when they use your data to uh, uh, practice uh, medicine or when performing future studies?
1: Yeah, I think um, uh, one thing that we must remember is that the most notable limitation in analysis of this nature is the post hoc secondary analysis, that this is not the primary analysis that was uh, you know, de- determined a priori. Um, although all the subgroups that we examine are subgroups that were pre-specified subgroups before the study was started. So they're already in the protocol uh, prior to so subgroups that, that we are able to do the secondary analysis. So that's the first thing. But uh, the other thing which uh, remains always there in studies of this nature, cohort studies, is that no matter how robust uh, or complex your analytical methods or means of analysis, Uh, no matter how adjustment you do for what you know as possible confounders, there are things that we don't know or we can't can't adjust for enough. Uh, So there there, there may be a lot of other confounders that we don't know about that have actually impacted the the outcomes. And And I think this is why in this analysis we excluded patients who received midazolam because we did not want to have the confounding effect of a third player. Uh, we, we just wanted to make it more pure and more manageable and more reasonable to do. Um, nonetheless, science so saying all of that, I think uh, these limitations are really offset by the light sample size, the complete full up, uh, the external validity of a large study in many sites worldwide, uh, plus a you know, a robust, consistent, multidimensional analytical approach that we we, uh, we did for, the, uh, for this analysis. Well,
0: Dr. Shahabi, I definitely congratulate you and your team for an outstanding study and for getting down to uh, this answer of uh, which is uh, preferred uh, increasing uh, dexmedetomidine or increasing propofol in both the being used. Um, I do want to give you the final um, comment, um, uh, any concluding remarks um, to our audience.
1: Well, I, I just wanted to thank you, Dominic, for uh, the opportunity to uh, speak at the uh, Breathe Easy uh, podcast. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we are really at a stage of uh, sedation research that we never thought we would reach before. I think I uh, think we now know a lot more uh, about uh, sedation practice, about which sedative to give to which population, what dose to use. Uh, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, when SPAS4 uh, will finish, which is uh, started this year, uh, looking at the patient in looking at the sedation practice in the older population than those who are over 65, uh, we would have uh, such a rich database that will inform our sedation practice, uh, you know, never like before. So, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, the next uh, three, four years, uh, uh, there will be a lot more data coming out from past 3, like uh, the sepsis patients, which we are stratified at randomization. There'll be data on the Group of cardiovascular patients, for example, will also come out. Uh, there are more data coming out on patients who had delirium during the study. So we have a very rich database that will inform what we do. On top of that, I think SPAS 4, uh, when finished, will add a substantial uh, data to what we already have. Uh, then we will really know a lot more of how to sedate patients and and which agents, what does which which people. I think um, we're, we're getting closer to more of an individualized approach and I think that's really important. I
0: agree. Uh, thank you so much for doing the work and uh, we're definitely looking out for uh, your group's uh, next work, uh, the SPICE 4 and SPICE 5 and SPICE 6. Uh, you take care, Dr. Shahabi. Great chatting with you. A big thank you to Dr. Yaya Shahabi, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.